You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR. It's 7am on Tuesday, the 23rd of November. My name's Evie and I'm joined by Genevieve and Carnegie. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going this morning? Good. A bit tired. Yeah. (laughs) Coming up to the end of the year and Um, just feeling exhausted. I was just saying before, it's just flying by. I feel like I haven't had a chance to be like, what's going on? Um, yeah. Yeah. I I just like, it it just feels very just exhausting. Just like being like, you know, coming up to the end of Christmas. Um, I'm just going to go quickly to a PSA before we get started. Hey, you mob. It's time to get back to the community. So get your proof of vaccination ready. Get started by creating a MyGov account if you don't already have one and linking your Medicare number. Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday at midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone, as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. You're back with 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, Let's go to some alternative news this morning. Um, What have we got in the news this morning, Jen? Some alternative news. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was just looking at um, the age this morning. Um, We've got Spithoods Bend in South Australia, which is some really big news. Um, 
it's been an ongoing issue um, in regards to um, a previous case in South Australia um, where Wayne Fellow Morrison died in custody in an Adelaide prison uh, back in 2016. So his family's been pushing for the criminalisation of Spithoods since his death since then. Um, finally, um, the prohibi- prohibition on this legislation um, was passed earlier this week and it paid tribute to this man who died in custody in prison. Um, he passed away days after he was wrestled to the ground by 12 prison guards um, and he was made to wear a spit hood and placed face down in the back of a prison van. It's such inhumane treatment to um, prisoners, you know, it, even someone under arrest to treat them in this way and for them to die in custody, it's just really inhumane. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's such a, it feels like such a medieval kind of torture uh, thing, you know, like it, it's bizarre to me that anybody has considered it okay to use all this time. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's incredible. And like, I, I think I, I would hope that these kind of, this kind of legislation is passed in other states as well. Um, but this is not a united sort of legislation. This is only mm-hmm. in South Australia at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, some other news this morning, um, Peng Shui, who is um, a Chinese tennis star, uh, there has been some controversy about her social media presence or lack thereof in the last week or so. Um, Naomi Osaka, who is another um, championship tennis player, has noticed, like, has been talking about her notable absence, and um, the Chinese government has posted evidence showing that she's still, you know, around and you know is, is, is still living her life. But this has come under dispute, and um, the tennis association, the Global Tennis Association, um, is calling on the Chinese government to, you know, prove definitively that she's okay. Yeah, this is really scary because obviously I think that allegedly a few years ago there was um, some sexual assault allegations and people are kind of making the assumption that that has something to do with uh, Peng Shui going missing, but there's nothing really being confirmed and this is all obviously alleged things happening. Um, But yeah, really concerning, but um, I guess it's good that the tennis world is taking a stand with this stuff. Um. Yeah. And um, I think uh, first draft um, has actually looked into some of the conspiracy theories surrounding uh, the reporting of this. uh, One of which is around the video that people are saying was staged and she is not in fact. Okay. Um, They've looked into different kind of visual clues in that video um, to kind of indicate weather, um, neighboring restaurants, which all seems to check out, um, which is interesting. It's also really interesting that, you know, for the general public in China, a lot of this reporting out isn't available. Um, Google searches in China don't really show anything um, relating to Peng Shui from the start of this month anymore. It's kind of all gone and, you know, just the general public don't have any access to any media we do or anyone else puts out. So, um, yeah, weird kind of black hole mm-hmm. if you're in China. Yeah. Yeah, really alarming. Um, one other thing that's come up on breaking news this morning, um, War Memorial Historians um, or the Australian Official Military History Unit um, in the Australian War Memorial has been denied access to Afghanistan war crimes um, report. So the Brereton report um, that was released um sometime earlier um, last year. 
Uh, so it's the unredacted final report of the war crimes inquiry. Y- you would think that um, the historical unit would have access to something as important as an investigation into Australia's participation in war crimes, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, they've been researching Australia's military commitment to com- conflicts in East Timor and the Middle East. Um, this is a project that was launched in 2016. And it's also funded by the federal government, so they requested access to that report. Um, And they were told earlier this year by the Defence Department that it could not be shared with them. Um, They're claiming that there is, you know, reasons of privilege and ongoing legal matters, but um, this is something that would still be held in confidence. So, yeah, very alarming. Yeah. Yeah. Super alarming. Um, just before we close out the news, just a lo- another quick thing. It's a good segue because later on uh, today in the show, we're going to be talking to uh, someone about Sudan, specifically a protest that's coming up um, on Saturday to protest the Sudan uh, coup. Well, that's went on in late October, but there's been a few uh, advancements in that uh, realm of the worlds. Uh, so recently the Sudan military has agreed to actually reinstate the ousted prime minister that was ousted in the coup um, and has also released arrested government officials. This comes with a little bit of hesitation, um, which will be discussed a bit later on, just to do with the fact that a lot of the negotiations uh, happened between obviously the military um, and a few government leaders, but also the UN and the United States, um, where it has been said that they played crucial roles in crafting the agreement. Um, This has come after uh, protests. There's been thousands of people on the streets. Uh, People have died on the streets in Sudan. Um, So it'll be really good. Stay tuned at 8.15. We'll be talking to someone about what's currently going on and the protests that will be happening on Saturday. Yeah, that's that's going to be really um, interesting and um, current to listen to. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, just one more bit of news before we talk about what we're, what else we're going to be doing on the show today. Um, just some news out of the UK. The Brit Awards has announced that they're going to scrap male and female separate categories for their awards. Now, I know the Brit Awards are just a little funny, like, you know, music awards thing, but that's such a significant thing. Um, This has actually come about because artists like Sam Smith and Will Young have previously called for the change, saying that the current system excludes non-binary artists. Mm -hmm. So they've decided to scrap gender categories altogether, which is really cool. Like, it it can be done. I I think a lot of the time a a lot of organisations think, like, you know, just because it's always had a gender binary, it always needs to be that way. So yeah. that's really cool. That's very, very cool. Um, let's have a chat about what else uh, we're going to be talking about today and who else we're going to be chatting to. Yeah, so earlier in the week, I spoke to um, transcultural artist Nikki Lam, who is helping uh, co-direct a show coming up called The Hyphenated Biennale. And she spoke to me about... Um, the different kinds of identities that migrants to Australia often have and how that's been underrepresented in art. So I'm keen to hear from her later today. Cool. Um, We're also going to have a little bit of a reflection on Transgender Week of Remembrance, which was last week. Um, And yeah, just talk about some of the, um, the things that we've seen and just the really cool news that we've seen as well. And, oh, yeah, later on, sorry, I jumped in a little bit too soon. <laughs> um, we're going to be hearing some speeches from uh, the Slut Walk 2021 uh, that was last week. Uh, so we're going to be hearing from Dr. Blair Williams, Queenie Bonbon and Eva Sless. 
Um, so if you missed some of the content that was uh, being broadcasted last week, we'll be playing that for you uh, later on. And also I am going to be very lucky to speak to the hosts of Bittersweet Podcast, Wintana and Rahal, who are Melbourne-based creatives uh, and they co-host Bittersweet, which is a platform developed with the intention of authentically representing the stories and experiences of people of colour living in Australia. And also, as I said earlier, I'll be interviewing Allah on Sudan. Allah Al-Sheikh is a student of Sudanese origin, born in Australia, and has been one of the key members organising a protest that's happening on Saturday. So I'll be very excited to speak to her. That's really amazing. Um, so, yeah, as you can see, we've got a really jam-packed show coming up for you. Uh, we'll be right back after a few messages. Hey, you mob. It's time to get back to the community. So get your proof of vaccination ready. Get started by creating a MyGov account, if you don't already have one, and linking your Medicare number. Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. We're Victorian bushfire survivors. We know fire. With flames reaching 1,100 degrees, the wave of radiant heat can kill from 200 metres away. If you knew fire, you'd prepare your home. You'd know when to leave where to go and how to get there. We know how important it is to plan and prepare. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. 100 metres. 75 metres. 50 metres. 25 metres. 15 metres, 10 metres, 5 metres. Grass fires move faster than you think. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Hello, this is Archie Roach and you're listening to Good Music on 855 AM on 3CR. Say no to genocide, say no to war. Too many people are killing each other, what are they fighting for? Say no to mass murder, say no to fear. We can only hide our heads for so long Claiming it won't come here It's just another protest song Well, what more can we do? We're trying to save the world Don't you think that you should too? Yeah Say no to violence It dominates TV Stop all the little children watching Death and pornography Say no to all the abuse, stop hurting one another If freedom of speech means all this crap, then Scream out, brothers! It's just another protest song, well, what more can we do? We're trying to save the world, don't you think that you should too? It's just another protest song, it's no more than it seems We're trying to stop the war 
That was protest song by Future Native. So earlier in the week, I spoke with Nikki Lam, who is a visual artist and curator based in Nam. Her work focuses on the complexity of migratory experiences within and beyond the concept of diaspora. I spoke to Nikki about what it means to be a transcultural artist in predominantly white art spaces, and her experience co-directing hyphenated projects and hyphenated biennial. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Oh, hi. Um, thanks for having me. Can you please uh, start by just telling us a little bit more about your professional background? Um, sure. I am a visual artist, um, curator, and um, producer. I am currently working as the co-director of the Hypernated Projects and um, Hypernated Biennial. Um, and most of my works are sort of like in the moving image space and also um, looking at like trans cultural practices yeah so hyphenated projects as you mentioned is a platform for artists with transcultural practices and a collective that presents collaborates and develops new ideas can you maybe explain a little bit about what transcultural practice is and what it can look like mm-hmm. i mean there's there's heaps of like academic um, kind of definitions of what that is, um, but I probably wouldn't go into that direction. I think that a very sort of, I guess, more realistic understanding of what that is, is that um, a lot of um, artists who live in the diaspora or themselves being migrants or refugees have relationships with multiple locations. And quite often the way that we create art and culture um, or as, you know, us as cultural producers, uh, con- you know, we are influenced by um, all of those cultures all at once. Um, so sometimes, you know, when we think about transcultural practices, it's sort of like um, we might not be anchored in one particular location, but multiple locations. And it's quite fluid and it, it's like the hyphen in hyphenated projects where it is the connector, it is an anchor, it's um, sort of like the thread that we we draw between different diasporas and um, different artists who exist in the same community. That really resonates with me because I'm a migrant to Australia and I grew up in India, in different parts of India, and then for a little while 
in the States and I've lived here for a number of years, like in different states in Australia as well. So I really resonate with the idea of the hyphen and having different identities based on different locations and what you identify with. Um, is that a similar experience for you personally? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was born and raised in Hong Kong and I lived there half my life and actually came here as an international student and sort of just stayed after that. But, you know, sometimes I think when, you know, when when we talk about the migrant story, it's it's quite often framed in this like, oh, we relocated and then so now our story begins in Australia. Um, and it's actually not singular like that it's like you know we would still have connections with you know with Hong Kong and you know you with India and um, those are the connections that we could never we could never shake it's it's always there with us all the time yeah and I just uh, personally feel like a lot of art historically has not centered that as a narrative and hyphenated projects platforms you know, these Asian Australian experiences, um, as well as collaborations with First Nations people as well. Yeah, like, do you, why do you think this is important to platform? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, well, there's, there's, I guess, two um, main reasons. The first one is that as, you know, as Asian Australians, I think given that um, identity can be loosely defined and, and, and there's the, the, the sense of belonging with that identity can be quite tricky for some people. And we sort of just feel that, sure, there's, you know, we just want to be able to kind of create a space where we can um, unpack that a little bit more within Asian Australian communities and kind of, I guess, strengthen some of the conversations that are quite often ha- happen behind closed doors or maybe in your friendship groups um, that might not happen um, sort of in a more professional context. Um, So that's the first reason. And the second reason is, of course, that, you know, as Asian Australians, like we, we are on stolen land. And it is really important that while we talk about our experiences and share, you know, our experiences, that we also not forget that, you know, we are settlers here as well. And that how do we, you know, how do we sort of confront that narrative while still acknowledging, you know, racism exists, um, marginalisation exists. I think it's it's sort of like just opening that dialogue um, and see what comes out of it. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing for all migrant communities here to always kind of have in the forefront of our minds that we are on stolen land. And that informs our experience here and, I think that's um, great that it's, you know, a collaboration with First Nations artists as well. And speaking about space, I think the Hyphenated Projects is located at a house in Sunshine West. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We've been um, really quite fortunate that pre-pandemic we have been given free use um, of a residence, which is, you know, your quarter acre block three-bedroom house wow. used for free and the you know our very generous friend and patron um, has kind of been supporting the work that we do throughout the pandemic as well we used to kind of use it as a space for gatherings and residencies and all of that stuff it's like not outcome driven um, we never quite formalized that 
program, I suppose. Um, we just wanted to be able to support artists who needed the space um, and time. Because um, sometimes, you know, you might be in a share house and it actually helps a lot, even just um, being able to um, be away from your usual living environment and um, stay somewhere. So the house has actually been uh, renovated in a way that there's like a studio space and then, um, yeah, kitchen amenities and stuff like that. Unfortunately, pandemic has meant that we haven't been able to do residencies um, in about two years, um, which is a bit of a shame, but we're hoping to restart the residency program from 2022 onwards. I think it's great as well that it's based um, in Melbourne's western suburbs and it connects those communities because there is there are so many, you know, Asian, Australian communities all across the West um, from different parts of Australian migrant history. Have you found that the people in the West connect to the art and the space? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we haven't, um, the space itself is not necessarily public, so there's no opening hours or anything like that. But um, we definitely have thought about the location of the space and the communities that we would like to connect with. I mean, and I guess that's why with the hyphenated biennial, we wanted to focus on working with Western suburbs. You know, we're out in Sunshine Art Spaces, working with Boombank City Council and Footscray Community Art Centre, which is sort of the closest to the city, Incinerator Gallery, which um, it's in Muni Valley Council, um, that connects with Footscray Community Art Centre through the river, and then also the substation at Newport. So we, we actually, kind of with that in mind, we wanted to go quite deep into looking at what are these art spaces um, actually connecting with the local communities and what kind of what kind of art that we can bring to these venues that would resonate with the communities that actually live in these different um, Western suburbs? Yeah, and like you mentioned, um, the biennial is coming up at the end of November and it's been described as, a, as being a collective of unlearning. Can you explain this a bit more? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's quite funny because I think at the beginning of the biennial, we just, it was actually a joke between my co-director, Fung Ou, and myself, who just had, we were joking in early 2019, but wouldn't it be funny if we had a Biennale? And it sort of became a reality after we spoke to some of the venues, again, as a the joke and they all just kind of went oh yeah why not and so there has there has been a lot of um, unlearning throughout the process things like you know being being like an independent collective um, there's very limited capacity but we really wanted to be able to I guess address some of the industry-wide issues in operating as curators and as artists um, we wanted to prioritize artist care and particularly throughout the pandemic that you know you know if we couldn't get a conversation uh, going between artists because of the pandemic we were not going to force it so there was kind of a lot of unlearning in this environment where outcomes are always the goal of like a lot of these like large scale projects and I think in turn it has been a really great experience because one of the exhibitions that we ended up 
doing, which will open at Footscray Community Art Centre on Friday, is Threats We Hold Together, which is not necessarily the exhibition that one would expect of a biennial after two years of, of developing, um, but it is kind of a collection of reflections from artists and curators in the project um, about sort of the processes and about some of the things that you don't usually see in an exhibition. So things like conversations with each other, with friends, um, unfinished works, um, work in progress, things like that as a way to sort of acknowledge that actually we have collectively gone through, you know, the pandemic and, and it is still kind of going, but how do we not um, always just focus on like a slick beautiful ambitious outcome so it's almost like you're kind of you're watching the unlearning process I hope I hope that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> we're still installing you see <laughs> well it sounds incredible what has your experience been like as an artist and curator in Melbourne you know as as an Asian migrant um, you occupy a space in the art world that has been historically quite white and you of course have transcultural experiences yourself you know what has that been like for you? I think that it's been it's it's quite an interesting process because I, I guess I um, I'm in my early 30s and I went through art school um, in the late 2000s um, and the climate then was quite different it was um very very white like that's not to say that there hasn't been a lot of Asian Australian artists who have been doing great things it's just that I think there wasn't necessarily a very visible community in Melbourne and so I think I sort of just uh made my way through all of that and try and like carve up some space for myself and for my friends, my peers, and I think I think the in the last ten years a lot has shifted politically, and you know obviously there has been a lot of other incredible people doing incredible work, and I think together we have kind of seen some changes in the last couple of years. Although, as someone who's quite skeptical about institutional transformation, I will remain yeah, just kind of like okay, great, we're visible. What does that, what is next? Like, what does that mean for artists now? Like, it's probably, you know, while it's great that um, representation is often being addressed and, and everyone's talking about it, but visibility is also a double-edged sword. And are we creating spaces that are actually safe and genuine and and kind of fostering a culture that is about sharing opportunities and stories and narratives as opposed to are we just replacing all the gatekeepers in the art world yeah it's like still kind of to be continued I think yeah <laughs> I I share your skepticism <laughs> I I really do hope that it it's not just replacing the gatekeepers you know from the outside looking in like it doesn't seem like that it seems for me, it seems really positive and like a new kind of way to make and understand art. And, you know, for me, the visibility is huge because I didn't have, you know, transcultural experiences and identities represented in art growing up. So I really appreciate the space that you and artists like yourself have created. 
Thank you. That's, I mean, I enjoy every bit of it. <laughs> um, so tell us about how long Hyphenated Biennial will be running for and where people can get more information. Yep. So the Hyphenated Biennial will open on Friday, 26th of November, um, and it runs until the 9th of April next year. It will be across uh, Footscray Community Arts Centre, the substation, um, Sunshine Art Spaces and Incinerator Gallery. And yeah, the program can be found on our website, which is hyphenatedbiennial.art. That's all we have time for today, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining us. We will link to all the Hyphenated Biennial, Hyphenated Project socials in our show notes. Um, So everyone should check that out. Thank you for speaking to us today, Nikki. No worries. Thanks for having me, Kennedy. So that was Nikki Lam, who is co-directing the incredible Hyphenated Biennial, which is uh, opening this Friday at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Really encourage everyone to check it out and uh, just kind of engage in art that tells different stories, tells stories from perspectives of um, people who identify with several cultures Yeah, I think it's going to be really great. It's on till April next year. Next up, we're going to play a song by Nambe's singer-songwriter Greta Ray. Uh, This is a song from her 2021 album, Begin to Look Around, and it's about somebody who's stuck in a not-so-great relationship um, and the kind of mixed feelings that come with it. I think it's really great. It's called Cherish. It'd be so brave of me to walk away Leave this apartment, leave this place we taint Hold my head, sleep on it, keep you waiting Draw it out, give you space till it pains you We sit in silence here in the bed we made I sit beside you, wearily taking your weight You pull back, I reach out, try to save you Come undone, then go numb like it's easy to I'm playing all of my cards, sweetheart But I'm no match for your demons I know that I won't beat them Questions I should never ask Are all that I seem to ponder lately There's times ahead to look hazy
make you believe so you can cherish me like I cherish you What do I need to say to bring you back to recenter and see me the way I want you to I'm playing all of my cards That was Cherished by Greta Ray. Hey you mob, it's time to get back to the community. So get your proof of vaccination ready. Get started by creating a MyGov account if you don't already have one and linking your Medicare number. Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. Get your Radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. This year's Slut Walk Rally was broadcasted on 3CR and was hosted by artist and proud Gabanya woman Aretha Brown, Sassy Sidek, Mev Taylor, Nikki Stott and Taylor Austin in the studio. Today we're going to hear Dr Blair Williams deliver a speech about men and women in Parliament and how they're treated differently. Then we'll hear from Queenie Bonbon, who speaks in detail about sex work. 
Finally, we'll hear from Eva Sless, who speaks about the evolution and reclamation of language as a way of empowering oneself. And just be aware there's a trigger warning on today's show. Uh, we do speak of physical and emotional and sexual violence and mentions of suicide. So if this is not for you, just tune out for the next 15 minutes and rejoin us a bit later. Our speaker today is Dr. Blair Williams, who is is a research fellow with the Golden Institute of Women's Leadership at the Australian National University, and her research focuses on the gendered media coverage of women in politics, particularly in political leaders, to examine the role that the media play in upholding of gender norms. Uh, she is also a monthly contributor to the Canberra Times Public Sector Informant and a regular federal political correspondent for the Radio Adelaide. And overall, just a really cool person <coughs> speaking about you know women, women in politics, and um, yeah. I would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people as the traditional custodians of the land from which I'm speaking to you today. Sovereignty was never ceded, and I want to pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal Nation, past, present and emerging. I extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tuning in today. Eight months ago, I stood in front of Parliament House, looking out towards a sea of people gathered on Federation Mall. Dressed in black, we came together to protest the wave of sexual assault and harassment allegations, and the toxic sexist culture spilling out of that building. Around Australia, we took to the streets to declare that enough is enough and to demand action against gender inequality and sexual assault. We were angry for all those who had suffered from gendered violence, for the lack of accountability of perpetrators, and for the government's complete inaction on this issue, bordering on disdain. A collective rage and grief have been building in women and gender-diverse people around Australia for generations. We are fed up with the colonial cis-heteropatriarchal violence enacted upon us daily and with the fact that women of colour, particularly black, indigenous, trans and disabled women, are more likely to be survivors yet are less supported due to the intersections of racism, misogyny and ableism. And we are sick of being told that we should just put up with it. We've all grown up in a culture in which sexual violence is normalised and victim survivors are blamed for their own assaults. We live in a culture that protects the powerful, attacks victims, and puts the burden of safety on the shoulders of women. Rape culture not only permeates our institutions, but is actively upheld by them. These institutions were not created with us in mind. They were built by and for elite white men. It's not surprising then, when allegation after allegation spilled out of Parliament House this year. After all, Parliament is not just a boys' club. It is a white boys' club. It encourages entitlement to spaces, roles, and even bodies protected from any accountability. Though unsurprising, it was still shocking to watch yet again as men with power and privilege acted with impunity and seemed to get away with it. Men like Christian Porter, who, after publicly accused of allegedly raping a 16-year-old girl in 1988, who then sadly took her life last year, gained a temporary promotion to acting leader of the House of Representatives one of the most powerful political positions in the country. Or Barnaby Joyce, who returned to the role of Nationals leader and Deputy Prime Minister, even though he resigned from this position in 2018, following allegations that he sexually harassed a woman in 2016. Or Liberal MP Andrew Lamming, accused of bullying, stalking and harassing two women, and was blocked from recontesting a seat at the next election by the Queensland Liberal Nationals, but the government, the federal government, dismissed such calls and who will now be replaced by yet another male candidate who allegedly made fat-shaming and sexist comments during his time as a young Liberal. So 
So for too long, Parliament's blokey boys club culture has dominated and male privilege has run rampant. It has given male politicians a sense of exceptionalism, that the rules don't apply to them. Women politicians, on the other hand, are forced to endure sexist attacks and slut-shaming, as was the case for Sarah Hansen-Young, silence and gaslighting, as seen with Julia Banks, or vicious gender-based accusations within and outside Parliament, as experienced most notably by our first woman Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. The government's response to these allegations that we've seen this year has been to control and minimise the debate. In recent weeks, we've even seen Porter and Lamming abuse their power and privilege by sending defamation threats to groups and individuals, including academics, who dared to critique them. This is not about reputation or defamation, but simply about power, control and silence. As Australian of the Year and survivor Grace Tame wrote, the abuse of defamation law doesn't just shut down debate, it actively empowers and emboldens offenders and their supporters to feel entitled to instill fear in the already vulnerable. And I can't help but agree with her, as I fear that my words today might result in receiving a similar defamation letter. The Liberal government this year has sent a clear message about where they stand on issues of sexual assault and harassment, and it's not on the side of victim survivors. While the government is trying to bury this issue, we must ensure that it remains at the top of the agenda. This year, we've witnessed the collective roar of people fighting for not only a better government, but a better future. One that is inclusive, diverse and respectful. A future that holds perpetrators to account and a future in which we are all safe. Because we deserve so much more. So we've got Queenie Bonbod next. Uh, he was a writer, performance artist and sex worker living and working in Nam, Melbourne. Their work focuses on labour and the body. They have created four solo shows which have toured in Australia, Europe and North America. Their work has been featured on Locato, Backpage and in Maximum Rock and Roll and The Lifted Brow. Uh, they're a member of the Australian sex worker art collective Debbie Doesn't Do It For Free, which is an awesome name. And throughout COVID, they have been part of the Intro Room, an online sex worker story night and fundraiser. Uh, in 2019, they were the recipient of the First Drafts Writers Program. In 2001, they released their first chapbook, The Body Is Its Own Language. They are a 2001 participant of the Wheeler Centre Signal Boost Program. And here is their speech. I would like to acknowledge the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We stand on this land as beneficiaries of an uncompensated and unreconciled dispossession which began over 200 years ago and continues today. My name is Cleany. I'm a writer, artist and sex worker. The violence sex workers are subjected to is not an inevitable consequence of our profession as many would like to convince you. It is enabled by social attitudes it is enabled by dangerous laws. Violence against sex workers that occurs within and outside of the context of sex work is frequently overlooked in agendas to prevent violence. As sex workers, we know it's very similar to the violence against workers everywhere, in that the more privilege you have, the more likely you are to be able to work in safer and better paying parts of any industry. Having control over where and how we work keeps us safe, but this is not something that all workers are granted. There is actually nothing fundamentally violent or dangerous about providing sexual services for money. Sex work is not inherently harmful, but the way we are criminalised and stigmatised is. 
As sex workers, our safety networks are each other, yet our safety strategies are often criminalised. Laws exist to isolate us and criminalise our safety. We know abuse thrives in the shadows, and yet that is where we are constantly pushed. Many workers fear reporting violence because of the risks associated with doing so. This could be the removal of your child, eviction, loss of your job, or an arrest. Legal systems often minimise or ignore the violence against us. We know that poverty, racism, homophobia, and transphobia only amplifies this violence. Since the state is often the cause of our violence, sex workers have always created alternative methods of preventing, confronting, and healing from harm. Sex workers have been told that in 2022, Victoria will decriminalise sex work. My thanks goes out to the black and indigenous workers globally who have shaped the sex worker movement, and my heart is with those we have lost from the intersecting violences that target and criminalise the most marginalised members of our community. Decriminalisation is one piece of ending violence against sex workers. But when we talk about ending violence against sex workers, what violence and which workers do you think about? Is it those that are over-policed by the ever-encroaching systems of mass surveillance or the violence of borders or those entrapped by police? Do you mean those who are caught in raids in massage parlours when workers are then told that they are actually being saved? Do you include the violence of being told by swerf and turf feminists who want to convince people that consent does not exist once money has been exchanged? Or that your work is so stigmatised that you become cut off from your family and friends? What about having your sex work status leveraged against you, knowing that you are unable to access so many support services? Do you think of the violence of workers' lives being seen as disposable or are rape being used as punchlines? There are many myths that violence against sex workers exists solely as physical and sexual violence that is only from our clients. These myths deflect any focus from the intimate, structural and state violence that workers experience. Decriminalisation is not the end. Decriminalisation of sex work is an abolitionist demand. I hope that is where our strength and energy is shifted towards, that we can all be part of deep cross-movement work to take the power and resources away from police. Criminalisation, all the ways workers are criminalised, not only via sex work, but also through other forms of control and punishment that are used to maintain the oppression and inequalities of marginalised communities are so deeply connected to creating the conditions where violence against sex worker thrives. Let our work be to change those conditions by dismantling the power of the police to create decriminalised futures. Okay, so our next speaker is Eva Celeste who is an award-winning writer and presenter who specialises in sex education with a focus on pleasure, consent and body positivity to try and change some of the old-fashioned yet ingrained ideas that surround the topic of sex. She began her journey as a sex worker, writing adult-based articles for Australian People magazine, adultmatchmaker.com.au and other adult-based magazines, such as Australian Penthouse and even Australian Mother and Baby magazine while also delivering adult sex and pleasure education workshops around Melbourne. Through these ventures, 
Eva became a regular guest speaker on Triple M Radio and Joy 94.9 Melbourne, as well as a presenter at the Pleasure Room Forum and other adult-based sex education forums. Through the course of these events and while speaking to audiences and listeners, Eva realised that while absolutely necessary, it was a similar process to shutting the gate after the horses bolted and that these lessons really needed to be given far earlier to our youth and teens just starting their sexual journeys. Starting a youth sex advice column in Birdie magazine and newspaper, Eva also began interviewing young people about their ideas, understandings and journeys into sex and began to collate the information together along with important information about pleasure and consent that seemed to be missing from the high school sex education curriculum and created the book A Teen Girl's Guide to Getting Off, which has been changing lives and giving confidence and information to young people and their parents since 2017. With national and international television radio appearances, Eva really is changing the face of sex education in Australia and with the exponential rise in the past 20 years of teen pregnancies, STIs, misinformation and assaults, it cannot come fast enough. I love words. I love language. I love how it grows and changes and evolves, and I love how young people use it. They fiddle around with the way it sounds and what it means and turn it into art. When it comes to the language of sex, it's young people and artists who change the rules and the ways we speak about and learn about sex. From Shakespeare's slang of the beast with two backs to Cardi B's WAP, language has been used to amuse and educate on a topic that is shrouded with shame and misinformation. When it comes to the word slut and the connotations surrounding it, None have been more vocal and more determined to reclaim it and turn it into something different than young women, the very group it aims to denigrate and shame. Because that's the thing, young people these days are sick of the shame. They're sick of being blamed for the actions of others like rapes and sexual assaults. They're sick of their bodies and what they do with them becoming political fodder for old white men to debate and discuss. What they can wear, where they can go, what they can put in them, on them or take out of them. Like young black Americans taking the N-word and reclaiming it as their own, so too are young women embracing those words that have been used as weapons against them and turning them into empowering mantras of self-realisation and taking control of their lives, their bodies and their sexualities on both ends of the sex spectrum, from virgin to whore, two ends of the spectrum that have no value and no meaning and yet are used to control and police the actions of women and set their place as secondary to men, to rate their goodness or their wholesomeness or indeed their evilness. But enough is enough. Sluts and squares and every person in between is valid and worthy, no matter if they fuck every day or have no intention of ever fucking anyone ever. It has no bearing on who they are, what they are or where they will go in life. Taking back the words that have hurt us and turning them into something strong and beautiful is something women have done for centuries. From Lilith and witches to the sluts and their wet-ass pussies, women are the future. So listen to their words and their language and their truths. Let them warp and evolve the words that we've taken as hurtful and watch them create art and beauty from the rubble of pain and shame and hear them say no more, no more judgment, no more shame, just an embracing of one's sexual self. It's time.
it's slap time. That was some audio that was played uh, for the Slutwalk Rally broadcast here on 3CR. Next up, we're going to play a song by Nina Rose. Nina Rose is a singer-songwriter from Nam whose songs are poetic and folk-inspired. Uh, this next song is called Hold On, and it is from Nina's 2019 EP, which is called Patterns and we're very excited to play her on 3CI. I don't think we've ever played her before. Um, and we've been tagging all the musicians that we have been playing on our show um, on our Instagram stories as well. So if you were interested in who we're playing, um, make sure you check out our Instagram, which is 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, and check out our podcast that we will have up on the website later today. And this is Hold On by Nina Rose.
So that was Hold On by Nina Rose. Wintana Kadane and Rahel Ephraim are Melbourne-based creatives and the co-host of Bittersweet Podcast. Bittersweet is a platform developed with the intention of authentically representing the stories and experiences of people of colour living in Australia. They deliver weekly podcast episodes and social media content to engage audiences on topics such as identity, politics, race, relationships, self-discovery and popular culture. They join us on the show today to discuss the inspiration behind Bittersweet and what they aim to do with the podcast. Welcome to the show. Are you both there? Thank you for joining us. Uh, yes, hi. Okay, awesome. Um, hello, hope you're well this morning. We'll just jump straight into it. Um, I believe Bittersweet Podcast has been running since 2019. Could you chat to us about how the podcast got started? Yeah, sure. So um, this is Rahel here. Um, so Wintana and I started the podcast when we met in London back in 2019. Um, so I think our inspiration really came from seeing creative people of colour in London, um, you know, sort of carving out their own spaces and creating their own um, platforms to, you know, speak on topics that are important to them. And I guess we were just like, if they can do it, so can we. And it's also something that's really lacking in Australia. So, yeah, I guess that was kind of like the inspiration and then everything sort of um, took off from there. For sure. Um, and I guess we can jump to you, Wintana. Why was it important for you personally to start this podcast and did it act as a more of a cathartic tool to processing your experience? Yeah, so um, personally for me, it was just um, like Rahel said, there was a lack of diversity and representation and places where I think I could have felt more comfortable growing up. And I think that was the main, um, I guess, trigger to start Bittersweet. We saw so many people um, doing this and so many people that were in the mainstream that represented us. And we wanted to, we knew, we knew we had stories and conversations behind closed doors that we wanted to bring to the forefront. Um, and, I, and that's the whole purpose of Bittersweet, is to create a space where people that look like us, people of colour, black people, um, can have their experiences represented and to feel validated by you know, the conversations that we're having. So that was the main reason, um, yeah, mainly to build community. For sure, yeah. And I think that's so important as in, mm. you know, the story, uh, stories and uh, people's experiences really uh, help people see through the eyes of others. And I yeah. think podcasting, I mean, we've seen such a massive boom in podcasting during lockdown. I think it's been uh, so refreshing to see so so much diversity. Um, yeah, and I think uh, just going into the structure of the shows, um, does each episode divulge into a certain theme and does anything in particular determine this theme or is it more just what's uh, what you feel like doing through the week? Um, I can, like, I'll, I can start with that one. Wintana, I don't know if you want to add anything as well, but I think, um, we try and, um, break our episodes into sort of like two sections. So we begin, um, with, you know, sometimes we do a question of the week or we'll do, um, we'll get our audience to send in a dilemma and we'll sort of unpack it, or we might just talk about something relevant that's happening. And then the second part of each episode is usually, um, based off a specific topic. And those topics usually are just inspired by things that have 
you know, caught our eye during the week or conversations we've had with our own friends um, and stuff that just, you know, we find interesting and I guess we hope our, like, listeners do as well. Yeah, and just to to add to that, it's like kind of like how we we have the themes of our podcast where it's like identity, self-discovery, relationships, and it's things that come up in our everyday life. But then, like my house said, things that come up in the conversations we have with people around us. Sometimes it can be like pop culture inspired and we just see what we... But it's always something we'll see and try to make it relevant to our experiences. And it's always, yeah, something that we can unpack that way. But... um, yeah, that's generally how we go about it. Yeah, for sure. And has there been, just out of my curiosity, has there been an episode or a week that um, really sits with you or that you uh, remember and think that was a really good uh, show? Um, I think for me it's, like, it's always – oh, sorry, Rahel, were you going to answer that? Yeah, but I'll just go, I'll go <laughs> after you. That's fine. Okay, no, um, I think for me I don't really have, like, a specific episode. I always kind of think in, like – what's happened more recently um and then if you know that conversation stood out to me it'll be that but I feel like we had so many dilemmas come in from um our audience and it was about um marriage in the first generation and what I love is when we have a topic and we can like really unpack it and sometimes we'll go into the next episode where we'll have like a second part because of and um stood out to me was like the cultural difference between I guess like first generation or people of colour living in Australia compared to, I guess, every, like, you know, people born in Australia, like the cultural differences and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I love it because it can be also educational for our audience that aren't, you know, that don't share the same culture as us. So that was probably the most recent um, episode that I really, really liked. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, in terms of, sorry, I wasn't sure if, uh, Rahal, you wanted to <laughs> say something as no, well. No, no, that, that's fine. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so in terms of obviously the podcast centers on people of color living in Australia and amplifying their voices and stories. And I know this might seem like an obvious answer to us, especially when looking at, you know, the whitewashed media here in Australia, but you know, why is this so important and what kind of difference can it make amplifying these stories? I think um, it's, you know, like you said, the Australian media is so whitewashed and it's so disappointing that it's um, really hard to see people that look like us on our TV screens. And that was something for, I think, both Montana and I growing up was a real struggle. Um, so I think the difference is basically just like if if there's young people like us that may have had similar experiences to us that... Um, can see me and Wintana creating our spaces, having this platform and, you know, be inspired and um, feel like they, you know, we, we can do it too. I think that's the biggest difference. Um, and it's also just like diversifying yeah, Australian media, media and, see, and seeing that, you know, black people or people of colour aren't just, you know, monolithic. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of sides to us and that's kind of yeah. why, yeah. Definitely, And also to, to add to that as well, like it's one thing to have everyday conversations that you can relate to because, again, like our experiences are very different to, you know, the wider society of Australia just because there's so many cultural differences. But um, so there's validation in everyday conversations, but also 
having a segment that we started last year um, called Shifting Culture, we try to bring on women of colour that um, are in business, fashion, um, you know, they study, they, they talk about mental health, women that have platforms that other people can look at. And like Rahel said, they feel like they can, you can be like that too. Like there's also a career path for you down there or you can find inspiration in, in women that look like you. I think that's really one thing that is lacking and one thing that's really important. Definitely. And I think I'm yeah. so glad you brought up that shifting cultures because I was going to ask you about that as well. Um, and especially, you know, seeing people that you represent as or you relate to more and as much as people like no that doesn't make a difference it really does and you're kind of seeing that especially with like tv and movies Mm. and stuff um so i think that's really good um talking about shifting cultures sorry i know you just mentioned it but could you just dive into a little bit more about you know maybe like what's been the response to that if you've had any responses and what exactly um you aim to do with the shifting cultures um Uh, special, I guess, episodes? Yeah, so with Shifting Culture, it's a monthly segment we do that where we bring on um, women of colour who are just like they've contributed to the culture, they've, you know, they've started their own platforms, they've done something in some way, um, and we bring them on and interview them. So um, our most recent one we had was with um, Shilpa, and Shilpa, she created a platform called, called Glow Real, which is very similar to Bittersweet, where she, um, again, she does a weekly newsletter um, and, you know, shines a light on women of colour that are in sports, in business, um, in, yeah, whatever they're doing. Um, we also had Maeva from, who created a uh, platform called Bread, which is like a beauty supply. Um, and it's her, her product is literally centred around, you know, textured hair. And it's something that has gone global. It's like, you know, it's, in Sephora and things like that. And I think for the younger generation to see black women doing things like that is very inspiring. You know, it creates this sense of, again, like I can do it too. Um, It also has stories that relate to our audience more because, again, our experiences could be very similar. Um, And I think for us, the response has been great. Like a lot of people have, you know, you see more people tuning into the episodes. Um, It's amazing that the guests are always willing to come on. So it's just always, yeah, I think it's really just like an inspiring segment that we have. And it's just been a really, it's a really cool journey for me and Rahel as well. Yeah, definitely. Actually, that leads on to my next question as well. If there had been anything uh, that you'd maybe learnt um, about each other or learnt about uh, life more generally from your guests and from doing the Mm -hmm. podcast? Yeah, I think like for me, definitely each time that we interview um, one of our shifting culture guests, I feel like I'm just nodding my head and just like, like feeding off everything that they're saying. Like I'm always learning from our guests because they're always like women that are um, doing like really incredible and like very, you know, trailblazers, like inspiring things. So definitely through those conversations, but also personally I've learned a lot. I think I've learned a lot about like, you know, there's a lot of things that I would have never felt like I had the capacity to do and that I have done um, while starting this podcast with Quintana. So I think that's been, yeah, it's been a really um, incredible journey for me. Yeah, that's super valuable. Mm. Um, Even just the process of talking it through and, as I said, with, like, Mm. lockdown and everything – 
being disconnected, but always realizing that you can still, you know, just talk it through with someone and having that conversation. And, um, especially when it's, um, in a place to amplify voices that, you know, we haven't seen conversations more generally in Australia. So I think it's so important and you should be, um, absolutely proud of what you've created. Um, I guess just a couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, what do you hope, uh, I guess in an ideal world, but I'm sure your responses have been, um, your, as in your audience's responses have been really positive, but what do you hope people come away with when they listen to Bittersweet? Um, I hope that they come away with perspective. Like, So it's different for our audience. I really hope they feel validated. I really hope that they can come in and they can, you know, feel comfortable in the space that, you know, that yeah, they listen to the conversations and they feel like it's, you know, either something that they can relate to and they feel validated by the conversations or they feel like, you know, they walk away with a laugh. Just a community space where they feel like this is something that they can, again, like relate to. Because um, I've had pages like that before that I've, you know, interacted with in the past or even now. And I know, and I really want that for our audience and our community. And for people in the wider community that, you know, don't relate to our conversations or don't understand it too much, they... Uh, they find education in it and perspective. Um, and I think that is something that, yeah, that's really important to me that they walk away with a different perspective um, because I feel like the media has always had this one perspective of what it's like to be a person of colour or a black person. And I think that we've never been in control of that narrative. So I just want, yeah, people to, and I think both me and Mahal obviously want, us, want them to walk away with perspective. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And just the last question, where can people listen to the podcast? Where can they go and find it and have a listen? And I would highly recommend our audience to go and have a listen, but where can they find you? Yeah, so um, you can find us on Spotify, so the Bittersweet Podcast. We're also on Apple Podcasts, so Bittersweet Podcast. Um, We're also on Instagram. Um, Our handle is bittersweet.podcast as well as Facebook and YouTube. So, uh, like, all platforms. We're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's kind of what everyone says. <laughs> it's like, we're everywhere. Just yeah. go anywhere. Everywhere, just go yeah. find us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll pop all those things on our uh, website as well so people can find them through that. Yeah, um, but thank you so much, Rahal and Wintana, for joining us. Such a pleasure mm-hmm. talking to you about Bittersweet. Yeah, um, it's been really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for providing the platform for us to to promote and talk about Bittersweet more. Absolutely no worries. Anytime. That was Wintana Kadane and Rahal Ephraim from uh, Bittersweet Podcast, which is a podcast that aims to represent the stories and experiences of people of colour living in Australia. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast.
Yeah, I just wanted to, um, I, I think, talk about an important thing happening in the news that uh, has been a year in the making now. So I'm sure our listeners are aware we've touched on this a few times um, in the past few months uh, that in India uh, in November 2020, there's been, since November 2020, um, protests by a lot of the farmers across a lot of the northern states um, against three specific laws that Prime Minister Modi had put in place that would have been quite devastating to their daily lives, the income they garnered from farming. And for the last one year, they've been protesting on the borders of Delhi. Um, it's been a long year for, <laughs> for the farmers. And just days short of the first anniversary of the start of these protests, um, the Prime Minister has said in a televised address that he will be repealing the three new farm laws, which is huge news uh, for all those people. Yeah. So um, just wanted to kind of, you know, bring some attention to that. Um, he's done it on an important Sikh festival that marks the birth anniversary of um, the first guru from the Sikh religion. So it's also an important day for um, a lot of the farmers who are Sikh from Haryana and Punjab and Uttar Pradesh. Um, so it's very culturally significant to have it even on this day. Yeah, and so he's. I think that he's apologised and this is kind of a way towards that apology. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a born skeptic, so um, <laughs> yeah. I hope he follows through. Yeah, and I mean, nothing can really excuse the last year of what um, these people have been through. That mm. had hit, you know, the farmers' unions, um, farmers across the board have been trying to get the government to see reason um, and haven't succeeded. So I hope that the government does see this through and um, things do improve for all the farmers across yeah, India. That's really, yeah, that's incredible news. Yeah. Um, Jen, we've got another interview to round out the show today. Yes, we have another really exciting interview um, with Ala Al Shaikh. So on October 25th, just weeks after a failed coup attempt, Army Chief General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan dissolved the government in Sudan and declared a state of emergency and arrested the Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok and leading opposition figures. And most recently, a deal has been reached between Sudan's military and civil civilian leaders to reinstate Prime Minister Hamdok. Sudanese people have taken to the streets, expressing their rejection for the military takeover that day and every day since, and they were met with brutality. The illegal detention of citizens, journalists, activists and government officials, all with no charges and no access to legal counsel. Allah Ashaik is a student of Sudanese origin and born in Australia and is a proud African-Australian who is currently a youth leader of the Melbourne Sudanese Youth Organisation and youth representative for the Sudanese Community Association of Victoria. She is also currently in close contact with friends and family on the ground protesting in Sudan. Allah joins us today to discuss the current situation in Sudan and also a protest happening this Saturday at the State Library to stand in solidarity with those protesting. Thank you so much for joining us, Allah. All right. Could you start us off? I know this is like a big question because the situation is really complex, um, but maybe a rough timeline from what happened in October to now. Uh, why was there a coup? And I guess how has this impacted Sudan? Well, 
the military council has been in power since August 2019. So basically, um, when Omar Bashir was fell in 2019, there was a period of time where the military was just solely in power. So there was an agreement made for a transitional government between the civilians and the military, but as of now, it's only been led by the military um, side of it. So it, apparently, uh, two two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, there was supposed to be a transition towards the civilian side. So I feel like the coup was more out of tension of having to hand over that power, and this is like their last opportunity to grab power. Yeah, okay. Um, and I guess you know, we've been seeing so many of these photos of protesters and um, it seems like there's thousands of people on the streets protesting. Uh, so what exactly are the people uh, protesting and what are their demands? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I'm really proud of my people because even though we're met with so much violence by the military, we always preach for um, peace, justice and freedom. And Basically, what the people want is we don't want military. We've currently seen that we've been betrayed by it. And in the current developments of um, Prime Minister Abdullah Fattah Hamdok signing an agreement with Burhan to go back to what it was previously to October 25th is kind of a mockery to what the people have been asking. And considering as he was signing the deal, there were people dying on the streets in that very moment is very, like, like shocking to like think that your prime minister would do that. Definitely. And I know that you have friends and family and close contacts that are uh, protesting on the ground and are in Sudan. What is the atmosphere Mm -hmm. like there? What is it like being on the ground in Sudan right now? I feel like there's a very much heightened sense of euphoria because we're so used to like this uh, threat from the military, but like our message has always been the same and we don't we don't see we're not scared of the threat of the military but from what i can hear cuz currently the internet is right now on uh, following 24 days in like shutdown um they're still going out on the street there's no fear the the message is still clear it's just we we see power in our voice and no matter what the military tries to do we will still be on the street yeah, definitely. I think that's a really powerful message and it's, it is, as you said, really powerful to see so many people coming together to protest something um, and especially something as, I guess, heinous as uh, what has happened um, recently. And I wanted to ask as well, because obviously there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, the Western media represents a lot of... Um, I guess, issues that are happening uh, in Africa or even the Middle East and how it can be a little bit distorted. Have you noticed, um, I guess, in Western media that the broadcasting has been uh, limited or has been a little bit distorted or has it been uh, accurate? Um, so I remember when October like October 25th happened, um, watching like mainstream media like Al Jazeera, um, BBC, mm-hmm. all those media outlets, it was very much... Uh, a, like a, I don't know how to, a dampens um, reporting on it, like very much like, oh, th- this was caused because of this, but it's kind of like false because no, we there was multiple coups in previous weeks before that showing that 
it's not a problem with the civilian side. It's more a problem with the military side, and they're just trying to seize that power. But as of currently, because of the reinstatement of of, the, um, of Hamdor, um, there's a very much uh, praising of this agreement, mm-hmm. even by the Australian government, which is kind of like I I feel shameful to like even see that my country is saying that it's a good thing that this is happening because if you really do think about it how is it legitimate that a prime minister that has been arrested for almost three weeks or i think four weeks now coming out under pressure to sign an agreement by the guy who arrested him and the ultimate agreement is that he has to make um decisions under um burhan's um supervision so at the end of the day it's not coming back to what it was previously to October 25th, it's still very much military-led, sprinkled to cover up what it really is. Yeah, and I think you made such a great point with, um, you know, uh, Western media and especially, you know, these big mainstream medias kind of glossing over it, looking at it in a very uh, limited perspective. And there's a deep history that's complex and rich and, you know, uh, it would be, I know it's impossible to kind of convey that um, in one article or something, but, you know, when you miss out certain information, it does imply, you know, painting the, I guess, villain as, you know, the protesters or the unrest or something like that. So, I think it is really important to um, be aware that it is really complicated. And uh, that leads into my next question uh, specifically about, you know, the recent reinstatement of Prime Minister Hamduk. And, you know, this is something that I was reading was supposedly organized through negotiations with the military, but also with the UN and the USA. Um, And I'm sure, you know, I'm not sure if this brings up any speculative um, feeling in you, but as soon as I yeah, the UN and the USA are kind of... Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess, has that given people uh, any sort of um, clarity or is it still kind of in a bit of cloud in terms of what can be done? Um, it kind of symbolises how, like, this specific um, incident of October 25th has been very much forgotten in the media and, like, I remember in 2019 when the world went blue for Sudan, like a lot of like accurate information was coming out. But like now, because there's an, as I've personally seen, there's a neglect on social media. No one's really like looking into it, reading from authentic sources. Um, So basically the people, um, it's it's like, I don't know, it's a betrayal from the UN because like, I mean, the UN is not really a great institution, but Mm. it's just, um, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, um, you're 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 seeing this. We're 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 seeing it through social media. You're seeing that the military has done like war crimes, and you're like telling them, okay, you guys can. We want you to have power still. Mm-hmm. Like it's like that's not really a justified ending to this. Yeah, definitely. And just before we have to wrap up today, Allah, could you tell us about the protest? What when is it? Uh, where should people meet? Um, everything, all the details. Yeah. Okay. So we're holding a protest on the 27th of November at the State Library and it starts at 3pm and one thing that I'd like to mention is that just for this movement in particular, one thing that we find really important is just amplify, amplifying Sudanese voices so just, just being present, reading up on it, hearing from people that know people in Sudan, like it's very much a beneficial way to like get the word out 
Definitely. And we'll pop all those details. So the 27th of November, the State Library. um, Yeah, we can pop all the details on the website so people know where to go. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Ella. Absolute pleasure talking to you and about Sudan. Yeah, thank you for having me. No worries. Thank you. That was Allah uh, talking about the current situation in Sudan um, and the protest that's happening on the 27th of November at the State Library to stand in solidarity with Sudanese protesters. Well, I think that uh, brings our show to a close today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we had such an amazing uh, range of interviews and topics to discuss today. We'll put it all up on the website. Um, just stay tuned now to Accent of Women and stay tuned to 3CR. In Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.